HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, it's Monday. It's 12 o'clock, and this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are back from the summer session. I took a little breather, and um, I spent some time in Europe, and um, I learned a lot, and it's all been great, and I hope everybody else had a great summer as well. Um, Welcome back to the fall season. I've got a really fun and exciting season lined up, Um, starting with my very favorite guest of last year, uh, Dr. Ricardo Salvador, will be joining me in a few minutes. He is the Director of Food Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're going to be talking about politics, uh, the Plate of the Union Initiative, uh, which we discussed way back in December last year, uh, and much, much more, including uh, antitrust, anti-merger, all of the things that are going on in the food, sec- food sector right now. Um, but before we get to Dr. Salvador, um, we have uh, a little moment, which I like to call my joys and sorrows. Um, and some of you may or may not remember this, um, but it's really my favorite part of the program in some ways, just because it gets me to like bring out stuff that annoys me or tickles me um, and isn't necessarily about the food industry, although it often is. So um, one of my favorite things to report on in the joys and sorrows segment is about um, the uh, Republican governor of Canada. Kansas, Sam Brownback. And I don't know if you guys uh, picked up on this, but earlier in uh, the month of August, Donald Trump named Sam Brownback as one of his key advisors on agricultural policy. And that includes trade. And remember, we are negotiating those very big trade deals, the TTP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the TTIP, which is the Transatlantic Trade and Industry um, partnership, uh, which will involve us with the European Union in a, to a very great degree. But anyway, um, so he'll be advising on that as well as agricultural policy. And um, meanwhile, his uh, the Kansas Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, uh, has become a significant author of the National Republican Platform, which should frankly bring a chill to your hearts. Um, and uh, as they noted in, um, uh, where did I see this actually? 
where did I see this? Might have been in KansasCity.com. It was a blog. But anyway, um, I'm going to quote now. With the Kansas Brain Trust bringing their battle plan to the National Republican Party, you'd think more attention would be paid to how this experiment has actually worked out. And that is, if you have not been following what's been going on in Kansas, uh, they have suffered just an unbelievable number of economic uh, and service setbacks thanks to the wholesale adoption of the famous trickle-down theory of economics uh, initially um, proposed by Arthur Laffer, adopted by David Stockman, a self-described crank uh, who was former... former economic advisor to the Ronald Reagan administration. Um, And I think we know what happened there. Anyway, um, just in case you haven't been following uh, the the Kansas debacle, uh, the hospitals have been closed. There is lack of medical access. Schools are underfunded, and indeed they closed early last uh, spring. Um, The budgets have been raided from one sector of the government to another. Payday loan financing of the state debt is being considered. There have been massive job losses. Um, It's just been uh, what they would call basically a shit show. Um, And that is all due to Republican uh, economic policies and uh, especially to Governor Sam Brownback. So way to go, Kansas. Um, Let's hope you can vote the bastards out in the next cycle. Um, Here's a joy. I just want to remind you that since we are having um, the wonderful Ricardo Salvador on the show in just a few minutes, uh, the plate of the union truck, the plate of the union has um, put together a food truck. We'll ask Ricardo more about it. Um, But for those of you who are in D.C., uh, in the next couple of days, the truck will stop by Capitol Hill on D Street and uh, at Southeast and First Street Southeast. And we'll hear more about that um, from Ricardo. But they are literally going to rallies, uh, going to they went to a lot of the primary events um, in order to try to bring attention to food policy issues um, within this election cycle. And um, we're going to find out how well that's done. Um, and one more thing, uh, one more sorrow here, um, and that is. I've been seeing a lot in the trades about a condition called woody breast in chickens. Okay, it sounds weird. Um, It is generally observed in the fast-growing broilers sector and tends to be more severe in high-breast-yielding broilers, meaning those that are genetically engineered to have gigantic breasts and those that are the heaviest. And and so what's happened is is that they have tinkered with the genetics to the point that the the breast tissue grows so fast and is so big... and so heavy and so dense that the animal actually suffers hypoxia in those muscle tissues, and that results in a very hard, um, literally you can feel the difference, hard kind of breast. And I'm just thinking to myself what the welfare implications of that particular genetic um, faux pas are in terms of the overall health uh, and well-being of these animals. Um, But according to the Sanderson Company, which is famous for refusing to remove antibiotics from uh, any of their um, operations, uh, they uh, say that it will probably take two to three years before we can genetically uh, engineer that back out. Um, that's a little reverse engineering. And lastly, um, I just want to bring up again, because we are so close to the election, um, please remember that um, the, the wonderful uh, website for food policy action is absolutely um, unparalleledly useful. 
Uh, you can go to the scorecard, uh, look at every single one of our national representatives, uh, both in the House and the Senate. See how they vote on the issues that you care about. Uh, um, look at their scorecard. Find out who is supporting food, uh, progressive food policy and find out who is getting paid off by big business. Um, sub- subscribe to their newsletter and see what bills are pending in the House and in the Senate. Um, you know, inform yourselves and let your representation know how you feel about some of these issues. Um, it's never been more important to engage in the political process, especially because, as we will learn from Ricardo in just a minute, um, it has been, uh, to say the least, somewhat difficult to get any of these people, including Hillary Clinton, who I think this would be a natural issue for, uh, to address food policy and politics in this country. So um, we're going to take a short sponsor drop. We'll be right back with uh, Dr. Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and we'll talk more about politics and policy in the coming election. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. doesn't kill you food industry insights i'm your host katie kiefer you're listening to the heritage radio network in new york city um today we're going to be chatting with uh, dr ricardo salvador an expert in sustainable agricultural practices uh he is the senior scientist and director of the union of concerned scientists food and environmental program he's been on the show before welcome back to the program uh, ricardo thank you so much for being my kickoff guest for the season i was so happy that you could be my number one guest uh for the fall 
Well, thanks for saying that. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, you were, I mean, I got to say once again, you were absolutely one of my hands down favorite guests of all time. So just like I'm literally quivering like a little cricket here. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the plate of the union, because I said in my earlier segment, which I know you weren't able to listen to, but um, I understand the plate of the union food truck is going to be visiting D.C. tomorrow. So talk a little bit about the food truck and about plate of the union and sort of where we stand at this point. Sure. Uh, Plate of the Union is an effort, a concerted effort, to influence the thinking of the next president around food issues and particularly to realize that if food issues are dealt with front and center, a lot of the other major national policy priorities that any president needs to think of will also be addressed and that it's best that this be done in a coherent way. So I'm referring to such things as climate change, immigration policy, the nation's health crisis, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, uh, it's a partnership uh, among three different organizations. We're one of them. Our other partners are Food Policy Action and the Heal Food Alliance. And uh, one of the ways in which we've been making our case, aside from reaching out directly to the presidential candidates, has been to take our case to the public, and particularly in the key battleground states. And so the food truck that you mentioned is our tool for doing that. Uh, We started out the the tour just very recently in New Hampshire. Uh, Our truck is going to be in Philadelphia today, and as you mentioned, Uh, It'll be in D.C. on Wednesday, and we use the opportunity of the appearance of this truck uh, to engage the public and to engage local politicians as well as local influencers with the arguments that we're making. So um, other important battleground states that the truck is going to be visiting are North Carolina and Iowa, and we're making a particular emphasis uh, in Iowa. The truck is going to be there in October uh, during the same week when the World Food Prize is awarded, and so there will be a lot of media attention on food issues in Iowa at that time, and we hope that's also an appropriate time for us to insert our views. So, uh, in brief, that's where the campaign is at the moment. Right, and uh, let's let's remind people that Iowa is like one of our most heavy ag p- producing states, with the huge corn and pork uh, sectors being, um, you know, sort of a major backbone part of the economy there. Um, so, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense to be there, and there's a lot of pushback from those big entities against changing the food status quo, right? So, who do you have? Like, are you going to be talking to the governor, for instance, of Iowa, who's been? Um, not exactly friendly to, uh, you know, at least uh, water quality issues, for example, in, in, in well, Iowa? Well, that's the problem, that at least the, the perspective of the current governor, um, Mr. Branstead, mm-hmm. um, he needs to basically lock down the current agricultural model. And so you're right, he's not very open, very receptive to any reform. As a matter of fact, they've, uh, they've managed to actually... Uh, influence the current presidential candidates to support some of the key things that they want to see, such as, for instance, uh, continued support of all-out corn production and uh, creating markets for corn production with uh, renewable fuel standard, which would increase the demand for ethanol, which, by the way, it's not outside of the scope of of, um, this conversation to point out that You've actually raised one of the major obstacles. It's not an actual distortion in the American political process, which is that it all starts out in the primary elections with Mm. both parties um, contesting 
And as you mentioned, the belly of the beast, you know, they go to Iowa for the very first set of caucuses. Right. And there is no way that any presidential candidate can kick off their campaign successfully by going to Iowa and dissing the power brokers and the influentials there, all of whom believe that they need to kowtow to big agricultural interests. Yes. So that, that's something that's just a structural barrier in terms of making progress with these arguments. But the direct answer to your question is no, Mr. Brand said, unfortunately, is not receptive to these arguments. What about some of the other farmers? I mean, some because of the, you know, we're getting a little off topic here, but just, um, you know, I've introduced, uh, I've, I've interviewed um, uh, Bill Stowe, who has uh, brought a suit on behalf of the city of Des Moines against the upriver uh, agricultural uh, counties because of their heavy pollution of the w- drinking water. And I'm wondering how much farmers, you know, around the country. I mean, they've all united against Des Moines and drinking water. Um, it's just, you know, it's as you say, it's a structural problem, but it's like it's really kind of the first building block of changing the game, isn't it? Is to somehow convince farmers that uh, the status quo is not really sustainable, literally. Uh, well, you said it. Now, unfortunately, this this is a very uh, difficult topic, so difficult that almost any generalization breaks down, but I like the way that you framed it. Um, I I have two or three uh, reactions that that basically just affirm what you just described and and maybe a a way forward to what we're attempting to do with Plate of the Union Uh and, and rethinking the way that the nation's agricultural and food policies work. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, the director of, of uh, the waterworks in the city of Des Moines finds that he spends millions of dollars each year to clean that city's drinking water, and right. what he's filtering out of the water is nitrates, which vary in direct proportion to the agricultural cycle. It's very clear what the source of these nitrates are. Sure. And, um There have been any number of studies that not only have confirmed how the spikes of nitrates in surface water are related to agricultural practices, there's all kinds of knowledge about how that actually can be mitigated. So it's better nitrogen fertilizer management to begin with. It's a more diverse perennial cover. It's creating buffers next to water and so on. Now, so it isn't that there's a lack of knowledge, it's that the methods that would be required to mitigate agricultural pollution, primarily of nitrates, would reduce the amount of ground that is in corn. Mm. And the key market rewards that farmers respond to right now are the price of corn. If the price is high, they will try to produce as much to capitalize on that. If the price is low, they try to produce even more because they have to make up for loss of price per bushel in terms of number of bushels or volume that they can sell. So for a farmer, the answer to any market price is always produce as much as you can. So in this, they're being extremely logical given the incentives that we as society or the market provide them. Because for them to actually cut their production and implement other practices for the sake of protecting the environment, what we're essentially asking them to do is to be altruists. So we... Pay them to do the thing that we're criticizing, and then the things that we want them to do, they get no payment for. Thank you. That's a policy matter. That's actually something that we can fix by giving better incentives and rewards rather than incentivizing all-out production, 
we can actually reward people that are taking better care of the environment. Now, farmers themselves, because they exist in this environment, uh, have to tell us that they care as much about the environment as anyone else. They'll tell you that they live in it. Why would they poison their environment? But the objective fact is when you go and measure what the amount of nitrates is in surface waters, it is highly elevated in the Midwest. It concentrates the more you follow the hydrological system into the major streams and rivers. Mm -hmm. uh, it is no exaggeration to say the bodies of water in the Midwest are essentially cesspools. Uh, you cannot drink in, uh, any of that water without cleaning it up. You can't go swimming in any of those water bodies. It essentially creates a problem downstream, whereas, you know, the fisheries industry in the Gulf has actually been diminished because of the creation of the hypoxic zone or the dead zone in the Gulf. Right. So it is a very real thing. Now, given the market realities that I've just described to you, um, what uh, farmers have to contend with um, is the, the, the single biggest fear that they have is that they'll actually be forced through regulations rather than market incentives mm -hmm. to do something about this problem. And um, this is in itself, you know, something we could spend a whole radio show on. Yeah. But maybe the, the short version I can give you uh, on this is that the... Um, the, the regulations are actually something that society does need to take a look at. I'll argue for that, and I'll argue with uh, any of my farmer friends for this, and I argue for this on two bases. Um, one is that, generalizing broadly, the scale of farming in the Midwest is such that any practice that they implement is going to have huge environmental impacts, whether for good or ill. Mm -hmm. Right now, with nitrogen fertilizer practices, it's for the ill. It has all of the negative consequences that we've just uh, described. So they are polluting um, entities out on the landscape, mm -hmm. but they are not regulated the way that a smokestack polluter is regulated. They are not regulated at all. They're treated as farms, which means exactly. that very few regulations in terms of environmental protection. Now, what they respond to this is that they actually need to be trusted to do this on their own because they do not want to be regulated. And so, just to give you one example of how they're doing this, there is a nutrient management task force, not only within the state of Iowa, there is actually a multi-agency federal effort that works with all of the states in the Mississippi River Basin, and it has been in place for more than 10 years. So here they have been working for more than 10 years. The problem has only gotten worse. Right. It has not gotten better. So that is the reason why I'm arguing that we actually need policies, a combination of regulations and market incentives. That is what policy is to begin with. As long as farmers are depending on federal support for what they're doing, it makes sense that the public interest that is federal policy is utilized as a tool to incentivize what is in the public interest and to actually penalize the things that are not in the public interest, which is wholesale pollution of the environment. Clearly, the voluntary approach is not working. We have a track record of more than a decade that shows that's not working. And if we continue to accept that, as a public, we're being bamboozled. Right. So, you know, that actually needs direct attention. And as I mentioned, you know, for my farmer friends, I accept this reality that I described that mm. we ask them to be altruists when it comes to the environmental benefits and the health benefits that we want out of the food system, 
that's why we're working on policy reforms that will shift that so that when they do the right thing environmentally, there is a financial reward for doing that. Right, right. Now, when you um, when you approach legislators or, you know, state at the state or federal level, um, for instance, during the plate of the union um, food truck, you know, as you were going around to caucuses and so forth, do, do you find, I mean, have you found that legislators or would-be legislators are even particularly keyed into this outside of, say, the farm states that obviously have their own reasons for keeping the status quo? But how much, how much support or even interest do you find? Because I, I feel like these guys really have no idea what is going on. Um, they don't have, they lack sort of basic education about things like the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, like, you f- I feel like there's no, uh, they're not sort of connecting the dots of what is wrong and what is right about food policy as it exists today. And I'm wondering how... Uh, how your you know how your people have um, found the reception to some of the ideas that you've put forth in the plate of the union contract or initiative, I should say. Yeah, I, I think you've captured it very well. That's the reality. Oh, Although things you, are Carl. getting better, there there is a group of members of uh, Congress, at least speaking at the federal level, uh, that is beginning to learn more about these issues, care about them, uh, bring them to the forefront of their considerations. Uh, but again, coming to structural considerations, you know that the key players are the members of the agricultural committees in both the House and Senate. I do. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, that's the that's the issue, that those yeah. are the folks that actually need to be persuaded about the political calculus that they make, because that's, that's the name of the game. It's the political calculus. Right. It, you know, who can assure them that they will be back in office and therefore who has the financing to support them in their campaigns. Uh, so, you know, th- this is familiar to you and to all your listeners. And so that, that's yeah. really the, the brass tacks of the game. Um, I, I think that there's a way to address this by talking about the normal drivers of this whole process, and that is where is the profit to be made, and therefore where are the pools of money that will protect their interest in, in Congress. And uh, you've referred to... Um, to the farming population, which is, again, so broad, so diverse. You know, you can't say, you can't describe in one sentence something that will be true for 2.3 million people, no matter what the population is. And so uh, there is a broad sector of the farming population that I believe would be receptive to the kinds of incentives and rewards we've been discussing here. But... um, I think that the crux of the matter is that the political power is not in the farming population themselves. I, I mentioned even if they were united, 2.3 million farmers in a population of 310 million is a small sliver. Rather, the political power is actually in the industries that on the one hand sure. sell the inputs to that block of farmers, so they see the farmers as a market. And then the other block of industries, which relies on the farmers to provide them cheap commodities that then are processed into food. Mm -hmm. So it is those industries that actually have both the money and the political power. And um, pressure on the input suppliers is on pollution that results from either the overuse or the improper use of what they sell as inputs uh, for uh, farming production. And uh, pressure on the block of processors has to do with the public gradually waking up to the fact 
that our food system is by and large toxic, that you have to fight it, that you have to make careful decisions about what you actually buy and accept from them and all the way from their marketing to what they actually sell you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know as well as anyone how this is beginning to turn the tide. So there's ways in which the food movement is winning. I don't want to exaggerate that, but you know, think of about a few of the trends that have been in place, many now for a decade or more. Sure. The amount of red meat that we are consuming, right. which has repercussions on how much water we use and how much grain we produce, has been decreasing steadily in the United States. The amount of sugary cereal, breakfast cereal, that is being consumed by Americans has been steadily decreasing. The amount of sugared fizzy drinks, right. you know, sodas, that has been decreasing over time. The pressure for um, pork and poultry producers to produce in more humane ways and particularly to be able to sell meat produced without antibiotics has been huge to the extent that basically all major players now are finding ways to sell antibiotic-free meat in the pork and poultry industry. Now, That's the correct. Beef is far behind in that. Um, and, and we could keep going on with indicators like that. It's not like nothing is happening. And so those things gradually begin to translate into market pressures, which to the food processors and retailers look like the market is diminishing for this way of producing things, and the market is increasing for this alternative way of producing things, and we need to find ways in which we can address that market. It moves very slowly. I've just mentioned that these things have begun to happen over a scale of a decade. Right. It's important not to lose sight that that's the overall big picture. So we are winning, and then that gradually begins to translate into what those industries want Congress to support them to do or mm -hmm. to protect them from. So that's the, the game that we're in the middle of at the moment, and we want to continue to make the argument that there are uh, all kinds of examples of trends out there, such as, you know, uh, Panera, I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. um, they have successfully been winning in the market by basically offering us clean food, you know, free of additives, free of antibiotics. Right. Cage-free eggs, yeah, all of that stuff, absolutely, yeah. That business model has actually helped them yeah. to actually carve a nice piece out of what McDonald's has been offering the public. Right. And so these things are beginning to happen. That's the way that you speak to the political system. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I mean all of those things I agree that they're all happening and they're and I and as somebody who really follows the meat industry, I can tell you, I mean like every single major player, with the exception of Sanderson, um, but certainly for instance the poultry section, the Tyson, the Purdue, um, yeah. you know, they're all even the JBS uh, Pilgrim's Pride, they are all uh developing uh niche brands um that rely on, you know, pastured or whatever, you know, buzzword they want to give. To to that particular, but they're definitely trying to clean up their act. There's no question. Purdue, having acquired Nyman Ranch, is really making a big effort. It seems like. Um, but I wanted to move on for just a second. Your website, um, the Union of Concerned Scientists, points out that public funding through the USDA is essential to researching and implementing a more agroecological approach, which is what we've been talking about in citing these trends. Um, so let me ask you this. Who do you think is going to be uh, the next agricultural secretary? And why do you think that person is going to – it's not going to be Vilsack, I don't think. Yeah, uh, well, that would be um – there would be several different scenarios that we would have to case in order for that to be uh, true. And it would be, in a way, uh, you know, somewhat unprecedented uh, for the secretary to carry through from one administration to the other. Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> 
But um, that we're right in the middle right now in, in D.C. of the scrum where, you know, almost all of the think tanks and advocacy organizations are working on slates of potential cabinet secretaries, and certainly that's happening for the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, you know, so uh, without giving any of that away, um, one of Secretary Vilsack's um, a deputy secretary, the first deputy secretary that he had, Kathleen Merrigan, yeah. certainly be at the top of uh, our list. Um, she was the person that was conceptually the architect of the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative, which basically gathered up on a single under a single umbrella all of the programs within USDA that were already doing bits and pieces of supporting an agroecological approach to mm -hmm. a healthier food supply. Um, uh, but there are other folks out there uh, that have the standing of respectability with the farming population, which is an important set of stakeholders, uh, as well as with the sustainable ag world. One example of such an individual would be Fred Kirschenman, who I'm sure you mm -hmm. know, a large farmer uh, out of North Dakota and a former director of the uh, Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University. So it's those kinds of people that I think would have a real uh, good, lasting, positive impact on the department. Very interesting. I'm going to definitely follow that up with you off the radio, Ricardo. Sure. <laughs> um, can you comment also on, this is something I've been noticing, and of course, um, you guys have noticed it too, but the, the sort of, I want to talk about two things. Uh, the, the acquisition of uh, American companies like Smithfield by Chinese companies, and then um, the next question will have to do with uh, sort of the, the impact of, uh, say, for instance, Bayer buying Monsanto or the Syngenta being bought by a Chinese company. Um, but I want to talk about, like, what do you feel about the sale of these large American agricultural assets to foreign nationals? I find that personally a very alarming um, uh, you know, uh, development in how we conduct large-scale agriculture and, and sales. And I wondered if you'd like to comment on whether or not you think that's something that the Justice Department should be looking into or that a Secretary of Agriculture should take steps to limit um, or somehow otherwise regulate. Well, I, to make my answer short, which is that I agree with your concern, uh, uh, not only should the Justice Department be looking at it now, they should have been looking at it for the last 50 years as this whole trend uh, developed so that now we're at the point where we're talking about a, literally a handful of companies that control almost all of the major sectors of agriculture and food processing. So uh, it's scandalous, and as you know, the very latest um, iteration of this um, at least in my mind, has to do with the fact that uh, candidate Obama tried uh, to, um, he actually promised that he would enter office and do something about this consolidation really? in the agricultural sector, and then he tried when he got into office to do this. Um, he actually um, uh, sent his attorney general uh, and uh, antitrust lawyers together with Secretary Vilsack on a tour across the country to listen to farmers uh, and hear their stories about how they were victimized by consolidation, by the fact they, they had very few choices in terms of who they would sell to, what prices they would take, right. uh, and the cost of inputs. Um, and they promised that they would do something about this uh, until um, the uh, farm state senators, particularly Chuck Grassley, made mm -hmm. major public uh, statements basically equating that kind of talk with an anti-farmer attitude when, in fact, 
um, it is the most pro-farmer uh, attitude that there can be to open up markets and create better prices and choices for farmers. What Senator uh, Grassley meant and all of the people that align with him are that that would be very bad for these large industries. And those are the people whose interests the Senate Ag Committee and Senate House Committee are actually on the lookout for, you know, per our earlier conversation. Right. That, that needs to be broken. But, you know, in your question, there are two things. One is the trend toward globalization, you right. know, a truly global uh, system. And the other is the trend to monopolization. And without mm -hmm. getting into the details, um, you know, economists will argue that a certain degree of monopolization actually increases economic efficiency. And I'll, you know, I'll leave that, you know, argument on a pinhead to, to economists. Mm -hmm. But there is no economist that I know that would argue that the situation where you have four or five companies that control an entire sector is more competitive and therefore better. And you can actually read analyses as recently as just a few months ago in The Economist, you know, of all magazines, <laughs> that, that essentially pointed out that we have a degree of consolidation that is actually unproductive, that doesn't lead to innovation or free market competition in the United States in the food sector. When you look at textbooks, for examples, of how toxic monopolies can be, the U.S. agricultural sector is example A mm -hmm. of that. This is not a secret that we're talking about here. Rather, what we're talking about is the political power of this sector to be able to buy and control the Congress that they want. But going back to the um, these two topics of globalization and monopolization, um, you know, one thing that is important to keep in mind, particularly since globalization and trade agreements have been uh, part of some of the political discourse during this uh, campaign, presidential campaign, you know, to the extent that there's any serious discourse, at, at least the free trade agreements that the United States is party to have been invoked. And they've been invoked by bringing up how they actually haven't worked for the working people in the United States who... Uh, perceive that they have been displaced. Mm -hmm. And um, that perception is based in reality. And uh, I think it's very important to point out with real-life examples like this that the theory of market capitalism is that through um, global competition and the fact that not all of us can produce the same things, and some of us can produce some things way more efficiently. By trade, we actually even up what some of us can do better than others in such a way that we can all benefit. And okay. that's the theory. It's beautiful in a textbook. Yeah. And the way that it actually works in the real world is that as working people in the United States and other parts in the world Absolutely. have discovered, what actually happens is that you concentrate wealth. You actually remove jobs and you move capital and infrastructure to certain parts of the world. And what's missing is what fills in for the loss of jobs and the loss of industry where you have that vacuum created. Now, by market uh, theory, by capitalist uh, theory, you would have the comparative advantage of the places that experience loss supplying an alternative market as a result, or an alternative industry, um, as a result of their own advantages. And so to make that part of the theory work, and by the way, it's not working right now. That's mm. the gap that, that uh, workers in the United States have experienced. 
there needs to be investment, uh, whether on the parts of industries or of industry working together with government to create these alternative markets and the alternative industries. And what we're referring to as agroecological production or uh, regional food production, mm -hmm. these are all things that with investment could flourish and provide livelihood for farmers and more healthy food, a more diverse food supply for people throughout the United States. And there is no investment in that. Instead, what the government does is to double down on the negative, and that is the loss, the flight of jobs, the flight of capital to other places by investing in large global companies that are the least needy of government investment. They mm -hmm. need to support the wrong things. So that, that's the issue with both monopolization and with globalization. They're, they're, you know, when you speak about them, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're about to go off on an anti-capitalist mm -hmm. tirade, but it is important to point out that the capitalist theory that looks so beautiful in textbooks does not work that way in the real world. And one of the reasons is that there's huge distortion, malfeasance in terms of the way that the government actually expands public monies, tax mm -hmm. monies go to support industries that don't need their support. And the flip side of that is they don't support the people and the industries that could create flourishing livelihood. Right. And, and hence we have Donald Trump. <laughs> Uh, we, we have lots of distortions at the moment. I mean, you know, they haven't emerged in a vacuum. You know, they actually are yeah, feeding. There the are reasons. Well, I mean, I, I just finished writing a book about the meat industry around the world. And the thing that really struck me was, as you point out, the, the sort of globalization and monopolization, but then also this kind of real race to the bottom in terms of finding the cheapest labor markets, uh, developing in places where um, or buying or land grabbing in countries where there's an unstable uh, political situation or people can be readily and easily exploited. Land uh, laws are not especially well uh, regulated, written or, you know, or even in enforced. I mean, all of that stuff. And that's happening in the meat industry all over the world. And, you know, we will wreak uh, some really ugly rewards from that, uh, allowing that to go forward. Um, but we unfortunately have to almost wrap up. So I want you, Ricardo, um, to uh, tell people the best way to sort of get plugged into what you're doing at Plate of the Union and at Union for Concerned Scientists, which, by the way, the website is so fantastic. Um, and I've been encouraging people to go to Food Policy Action. But what other ways can people sort of get involved or just learn more about some of the stuff that you and I have been talking about? Um, because I think especially these issues around capitalism and labor markets and um, how the support of these large businesses is not only being paid for by taxpayers, but is also uh, wreaking havoc among amongst domestic markets, um, th that kind of information doesn't seem to get a lot of play. You can't make it into a soundbite. <laughs> so make it into a soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if I could do that, let me, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, uh, but you're absolutely right. I, 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 you should just be interviewing yourself. I think that was a brilliant encapsulation of the situation. <laughs> well, that, thank you, Ricardo. I just look like well, mutual and admiration. Here's what I would recommend for your listeners. Um, Part of why everything that we've discussed uh, occurs, why it's possible, is that it happens in the dark. Just as you've right. mentioned, most people, including most politicians within the system, are not aware of the dynamics that we've described. It's a couple of committees. Yeah. It's a small number of industries that basically work in cahoots 
they write the rules that they want for themselves, they coddle the politicians that will look after them, and the system works in the shadows because the rest of us basically are completely unaware of what appear to be very small potatoes, you know, rural concerns or farm or agricultural issues. But as we've discussed, they have huge ramifications in terms of the quality of our drinking water, in terms of global climate change, in terms of immigration policy, the yeah. demand for labor, you know, the public health. Public health, absolutely, yeah. They're, they're all over the place. And so here's what I would recommend, and it goes right to the heart of what's happening behind closed doors and in dark recesses here um, uh, in, in D.C. There is obviously the um, election coming up for mm. president. Um, we are a nonpartisan organization, and we would encourage listeners to take a look at the positions that both presidential candidates are taking on all of these issues that touch on food issues um, and make decisions on the best leader that gets the vision for an enhanced food system. But beyond that, there's a major piece of legislation that is going to be renewed uh, in 2018 that's known colloquially as the Farm Bill, which is where uh, billions of dollars are actually invested in preserving the system as I've described it. That's one of the best examples that there is of this conversation taking place in the dark. Now, one indicator of a movement having political power is that the power structure is not able to do what it wants to do unless it contends with the political power of the movement. And the food movement has not yet reached the point where when big food, big agriculture wants to continue to preserve policies that favor them Mm -hmm. against the public interest, the food movement lights up switchboards here in D.C. or fills up inboxes of mail, and that's what we need to do, and we need to target specifically those members of Congress on the agriculture committees in both houses, particularly when it comes to negotiations around the Farm Bill. Um, Maybe as one pointed example, without being really theoretical here and just tell you something really practical, What some of those billions of dollars go into is a system that basically literally cements the status quo and what is referred to as risk management, uh, you know, euphemism in agricultural policy circles. Um, It's money that essentially makes it so farmers don't have to change what they do because the full trust of the federal government backs them up no matter what goes wrong, you know, whether it's a market disaster, whether it's a natural disaster, we cover them. We make them whole. So why would they change anything? Well, um, it's also anti-capitalist. And so, you know, conservative folks who have the conceit that they believe in the free market are not participating in that free market if they participate in these government support programs. Mm. Uh, I want to be really clear. People who are interested in this can read up on a report from a conservative foundation, the Heritage Foundation, not your foundation at Heritage Radio, but the D.C.-based Heritage Foundation, uh, just a couple of weeks ago released a report where they call for the elimination of all major agricultural support programs except for disaster relief programs. And I don't think there's a single American who would be against helping the farming population in cases of uh, huge disasters. But by calling for the elimination of these market-distorting, anti-capitalist farm support programs, here you have a deeply conservative organization converging with some of the things that we've been saying. On the one hand, 
you don't incentivize people to adopt better practices by basically guaranteeing that no matter what they do, everything mm. will be fine for them. So, you know, we really do need to create a market system that actually incentivizes the things that we want, as we've discussed earlier. So that's one thing. The other thing that they say, and something that uh, Secretary Vilsack just confirmed very recently, actually just last week, mm. this nation needs a coherent approach to the way that we run food and agricultural policy. Right now, there's 15 different agencies that have purview over some little chunk, and they're all uncoordinated, and sometimes they work against each other. The USDA itself works at cross-purposes because they actually recommend a very healthy diet and then support programs that right. encourage cheap junk food production. So that's incoherence. And Secretary Vilsack just recommended last week that the next administration actually institute a council or some other mechanism whereby we can actually bring coherence and harmonize all of this nation's agricultural and food policies so that we keep, we stop doing the foolish things that you and I have been discussing over the last few minutes. So if the public can support the next administration in doing that by lighting them up with that demand, particularly when advocacy such as ours bring it into the public discussion. And if the public can light up the switchboards and fill in the inboxes of members of the agriculture committees when it comes to debating the farm bill, or if right now they will fill up the inboxes of members of Congress that are holding the child nutrition reauthorization mm -hmm. uh, hostage to budget negotiations, you know, playing chicken with the administration right. over school lunch. Those things would be very helpful to show the growing political power of the food movement. Right. That sounds. Those are great recommendations. I did notice that harvest, uh, that heritage uh, report. I haven't read it yet, but um, I was really surprised when I read the headline about it. I was like, "Hmm, okay, finally some movement on the on the right side of the on the other side of the aisle." Anyway, Ricardo, we have to wrap it up here. But uh, once again, this is Dr. Ricardo Salvador. We've been talking to. He's the uh, director of food policy at the Union for Concerned Scientists. Um, check out their website. Look at food policy action. Uh, keep up with the news on Plate of the Union, and uh, hopefully, we'll be talking again soon. And I'm actually going to be in D.C. on Wednesday, Ricardo, uh, talking to Shelley Pingree. So um, shoot me a question if you have one right on the top of your head that, uh, that you'd like to hear her answer about um, agricultural policy and especially her, um, her food waste law that's coming up. It's for, a fabulous law. Uh, yeah. Good. I'll follow up with you. And thank you very much okay. for the opportunity. Thank you. It was a pleasure having you on, as always. And thanks to my engineer. Thanks to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week. We'll be talking to the wonderful Arlen Wasserman, a name you probably don't know but should, um, because he literally has his finger on the pulse of absolutely everything food-related in this country. Um, so thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 